Aalto University Podcast. This is Cloud Richards. I'm Tommy Kauppinen and I'm here with Julian Gauntier. Welcome. Great to hear you. Uh, Great to see you, actually. This is the first time we actually see each other. Yes, it is. But at a safe distance, of course. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, we have been talking over the phone quite a lot Mm -hmm. and about your uh, background and and your, uh, of course, your dreams, what to do. Uh, But can you share our listeners who you are and where do you come from? Let's see where to start. Well... I am a postdoctoral fellow in biomolecular materials here at Alto University. And I guess I live and work at the intersection of craft, science, and engineering. Mm-hmm. What, what, uh, what brought you there to that intersection? I guess not necessarily wanting to commit to one world. And being curious about the world and really just wanting to follow the methodologies that would allow me to better understand these questions that I have about, for instance, how we can best use natural materials in our everyday life to promote a better way of living sustainably on this planet Talking about the planet, how do you feel? I mean, now it's the, I mean, you mentioned safe distances and, and, and of course, I mean, now we are living through this whole pandemic. Um, what are your feelings about it? What else, have we learned anything about the world and the planet uh, through this whole pandemic time? And, uh, and how do you see what, what can we bring to the post-pandemic world? Does it exist? I mean, what I, what is your take on it? You know, it's been difficult um, living here in Finland when my family and friends are based primarily out of North America. The world has gotten larger. It has felt like the world has gotten larger, but smaller at the same time. I think... While there are a lot of new lessons to be learned in this pandemic, we forget a lot about the past. And I think some of the successes we've had in controlling the spread of this epidemic has has come from the way we've dealt with things in the past. For instance, with the Spanish flu or, or previous epidemics more modern that we've dealt with um, in terms of public policy, wearing masks, distancing, and taking responsibility for our actions. So I think while we've definitely made a lot of technical, technical, technological advances, we've, we've also, I like to think, remembered lessons from the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember learning from the perhaps previous mistakes, learning from the mm-hmm. successes. Um, uh, talking about learning, um, I know that you are super active in, in 
developing learning and actually ensuring learning, learning of your, um, your students. Uh, but what drives you yourself in learning and, and creating new learning designs? I think it's primarily driven by curiosity about the world. And I do strongly believe that um, teaching in a way should be integrated in most of your activities as an academic. And I don't see teaching as being distinct from my own research or any other research for that matter. Um, I think, yeah. Mm, that's brave thinking. Uh, not all people think like that. I think it's... Um, It's only, um, well, I mean, you hear, of course, I see, um, and, and hear, uh, many people saying that, but, um, it's, uh, it's still, uh, fantastic to, um, hear it. Um, I mean, uh, I would like to dive, um, a bit more deeper to, um, your educational development actions. Um, and, uh, so can you walk me through, because I mean, I know that you have been very actively developing now. Your teaching to include uh, history and philosophy of science. Um, can you walk me through, like, wh- wh- why and and how does it work, and and uh, wh- why did you uh, decide to go for that, and and um, also especially why students need to learn about philosophy? I mean, you are in the chemical engineering field, so why philosophy? Well, I think my approach to these things um, are somewhat non-traditional given. My wide range of interests, um, I began really as an undergraduate student at the University of Ottawa pursuing both biochemistry and chemical engineering um, in parallel together. I pursued these disciplines in parallel and not in an interdisciplinary it wasn't an interdisciplinary program in the sense that I was given one degree I was given two degrees and I did the coursework for both degrees in doing so I was able to compare and contrast really the way the material is structured and presented and how similar problems are tackled using different tools. And this very much inspired me to continue working between fields, really, while taking the methodologies that worked best for for my problem. And I absolutely appreciate... Um, the approach that was taken for my undergraduate education in this way because it gave me more solid tools than simply trying to combine both together. So I believe in an interdisciplinarity that maintains disciplines yet has a pluralistic outlook 
And I think it's this pluralism that is the piece of the puzzle that is sometimes missing in this discussion of interdisciplinarity. And that's really what's inspired me to look at my future career, look at my current work, and ask myself, how exactly can I integrate productively different fields, different methods, different outlooks, but also how can I account for things like lived experience within my own context as a scientist and engineer? Lived experience is a concept that's often really pushed back on in the field of science and engineering. For instance, when I personally face discrimination, what is my evidence for that discrimination? How can I reconcile that with my scientific and engineering outlook? Mm -hmm. Hey, you mentioned uh, pluralism. Um, what is it? Can you share with our listeners? And also, I, I would be uh, interested in hearing your definition of it. While I'm interested in topics such as philosophy, I need to... Um, state that I'm not a philosopher and what I do is I engage with philosophers and I work with philosophers and they help me and they contribute to my work and how I structure things, how I structure the way I think, how, how I look at the different structures in my work. So to me, pluralism is best explained as contrasting it with unification. So the easiest way to um, explain pluralism, which I must admit, I don't feel I fully comprehend at this point. That is part of what I'm trying to do with, with a lot of my teaching is to understand pluralism. But it, it somewhat stands in opposition to the idea that Everything can be unified, for instance, in a single theory. And I think uh, an example that would illustrate this would be um, the desire, for instance, to create um, unified theories in, in, for instance, in physics between um, what happens at the smallest, smallest length scales in the subatomic particles and then trying to explain using these subatomic particles, for instance, how a forest works or how an ecosystem works at its most extreme. So pluralism, to me, anyways, is, is a way of living and thinking in which you can reconcile different models and perspectives that are not necessarily compatible And I'm interested in understanding the mechanics of how we seem to successfully live and work in contexts where we have incompatible models or visions of the world, yet things seem to still work somehow. Mm -hmm. So kind of those theories or micro theories would explain, I mean, certain 
contexts or certain kind of levels of um, mm -hmm. of trading different things. But uh, but I wouldn't explain or wouldn't have any explanatory power in the other context, right? Exactly. And I think a lot um, has to be said about context and, you know, um, explanatory purpose. What is the purpose of the explanation? What is it trying to do? And um, I think working in an interdisciplinary context is the ability to deconstruct these um, not necessarily compatible views or models or mechanisms and highlighting areas where there are threads that could potentially be connected and woven into a new story, an additive account of the world. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting and, and, and makes a lot of sense. Uh, but um, one, one thing came to my mind. So uh, what is your take on transdisciplinarity? Because I mean, it's, it's like multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and, but then now it's, uh, it's trendy uh, to talk about transdisciplinary kind of attitude where it's like, like some problems perhaps about sustainability are kind of so big that not one discipline alone can, can solve them. What is your take on that? You know, I intuitively like the idea of interdisciplinarity, transdisciplinarity, all of these words that seem to describe the ability to work um, either in between, within, or without discipline. And I always begin my work with a bit of a literature review. And I often get very confused as to what these words mean and to whom. Um, there is a lot of great work out there describing the different modes of actions of these words. But um, I think what we need, where the gap is, is understanding how to successfully achieve um, describing examples of successful interdisciplinarity work, interdisciplinary work or transdisciplinary work. I do understand that I'm not, um, I'm not really answering your question because I think these are words that are very easy to use, but I think there are very few true examples of successful um, interdisciplinarity work because it really depends. So for instance, within my own work, I could claim that for instance, um, creating a paper with three different techniques looking at a same system as interdisciplinary. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done so that we can really better communicate what we mean about these concepts. So I guess this brings me to the topic of 
Well, I'm quite curious about how can we better explain and communicate our intent surrounding interdisciplinarity to achieve something that I do believe in and that I do try and practice intuitively in my everyday life. Mm-hmm. What do you what would you say um to Professor Babsa there is a listener um thinking whether she or he should um study several disciplines instead of perhaps only one what would be your advice to that student or that listener and be a lifelong learner as well i mean <laughs> it's all continue learning i think that to be curious to be naturally curious is one of the most exciting and lovely gifts to have and i think personally it's good to have a set of methodologies to start with i think it's important to then understand what exactly are the weaknesses of your methodologies where are the gaps in your methodologies what else is there in the world that can help i think it's important to master for instance a language but it's also good to be able to communicate in other languages and disciplines are languages in many in many ways to me um and it's important to be able to communicate across disciplines across disciplinary languages and my advice personally would be decide whether you want to master a set of tools stay open minded about other ways of perceiving the world and approaching a particular set of questions begin exploring methodologies that fit those gaps and also consulting with experts and discussing these gaps with people from other fields and perhaps ultimately somewhat becoming an expert in the other field in your own context so i guess what i'm saying is become the expert of your context and choose the tools you need to become the expert of your context no matter what that might be mm, that's uh, i really like uh, i really love what you said about disciplines as languages i think that is going to stick with me for a while because i mean i think really that's something i mean culture and language different disciplines also have very different working cultures right so you need need to really learn that language and that culture in order to communicate perhaps some people don't even want to try but also same applies to languages right i mean exactly. they they don't want to learn languages they want to stick with they i don't know they mother tongue or well english of course or mm-hmm. or there are some obvious choices um if you think about um 
your life or career, can you share us some, I don't know, turning point, perhaps some event perhaps uh, that made you think differently or, I don't know, made you want to learn something perhaps from another discipline, anything? Hmm. Let's see. I think, I think a significant turning point in my approach to learning about the world and teaching about the world really did um, happen when I arrived in, in graduate school. So even though I considered myself interdisciplinary, having completed a degree in biochemistry and chemical engineering, to a certain extent, those two worlds are quite similar. And um, throughout my undergraduate um, degree, I had continued to pursue music and um, paid for my some of my education through, for instance, working as an accompanist and, and teaching and doing all of these things. So when I arrived at the University of Toronto, um, I was somewhat disconnected from my, my community in Ottawa and didn't have access to, to, I was a pianist, so I didn't have access to a piano. And I had um, come across an ad for the piano pedagogy program at the University of Toronto, run by Professor Midori Koga, who was looking for guinea pigs for the advanced piano pedagogy program. And it was an extremely formative experience for me to participate as one of the students um, that was being used to teach how to, for instance, give a master class or teach advanced students. And I was paired with a graduate student who is now Dr. Boyan Ko, who really taught me about pedagogy in music and really how it was used in a very different way than in, in biochemistry and in chemical engineering, and that the values were quite different. And it really did, um, for instance, start questioning some of my beliefs. And one of these core beliefs is that we we have to argue for a single truth that we have to be right. There is no right answer in music. Well, some people might say there is, but at a certain level, there is no right answer in music. And it reconnected me to my spirit, to my body, to the materiality of the world, exploring the worlds through sound and touch and expression. And from that moment, I decided that these were values that I wanted to bring into my teaching in science and engineering. And I do see the trends going towards this, which is a positive thing. 
but it's a bit of a challenging concept to to explain and I value it from an intuitive perspective. And I'm now at the stage of trying to articulate and explain what what that exactly is and what purpose it could serve um, in a more um, concrete way. Mm-hmm. So, is it a um, fantastic story? I I really uh, thanks for sharing that. I mean, I didn't know it by the way. Also, that you have also studied music, Peracochi. And, um, well, I was a guinea pig. Well, a guinea pig. For, but I also very much benefited from, from, from everything because I was the guinea pig. So I was there for all the lessons so I could listen and, and learn about their approaches mm. and their theoretical approaches. Mm, mm, fantastic. I'm, I'm thinking whether, I mean, if we think about the metaphors, it's like, um, in music, it's of course about interpretation. So you have, you know, your composer has perhaps thought about something and then you interpret that. Uh, in science, is it like the relationship between the theory and then the application perhaps? Or like, how can I actually apply this theory to something? Or is it something else? Even, I don't know. About- so to me, it, it, it evokes for me. So in science, So when I engage with the philosophy world, it is an absolutely terrifying practice because the work is your own. You use the active voice. In science, though, I can't be personally attacked for this work because I'm detached. They are observations. I use the passive voice when I discuss science. The results do the talking. When in fact, there's so much work that has been done to contest in a way this, this way of speaking. Um, objectivity in science is a, a very well-studied topic. In, in the philosophy world. Um, and I see there are challenges. There are significant challenges and, and barriers to communicating certain types of observations that might be worth reporting when you are no longer a detached observer. When an experiment has an interesting outcome but isn't necessarily reproducible. How do we how do we engage with these types of things? Do we pretend these situations don't necessarily exist? How do we report them? To who do we report them? With what caveats do we report them? How do we explain the particulars of nature, the the one-offs, the exceptions? Um how do we integrate all of this into stories that make sense to us and that have predictive or explanatory power is, and I think ultimately 
if we're not trying to create unified stories, what are we trying to do? And what purpose does it serve? And I think the key thing here and the, the, the key message for me is that there isn't necessarily a right or a wrong or a true or a false, but in a way there's a, an infinite number of contexts. And we need to focus on the purpose of the explanation and the context rather than necessarily being right or wrong or being the one to unify the models into something that might describe the average, but an average that doesn't actually exist in this world. Mm. Uh, should we... Um, I really like what you said because I'm uh, just... Um, let me think... Um, about reporting in science in, in, in general. I mean, it's, it's not too many journals that would accept, for example, reports about failed experiments, right? But uh, should there be, I don't know, journal of failed experiments or a journal of outliers? I don't know. Well, you know, there, there was an account on Twitter, I think it was overly honest method or something along those lines where the reasoning behind a certain set of methods was honestly explained. For instance, well, um, you know, I, I only um, collected these samples from, from the blue swans because they were the only ones I found, or um, the length of this experiment was based on my sleep schedule or um, admitting the pragmatic concerns underlying the methodologies. Um, I do think that there are definitely issues in, um, in popularizing science. I think, um, for instance, there are certain fields that have in a way, lost a lot of their credibility due to um, science reporting, in particular cancer research and nutrition. I think um, those two fields in particular would, would benefit from rethinking how results of studies are communicated. I think um, what we value about science as a society might have to shift a bit and science journalists may play a positive role in this. Um, I think understanding the role of the scientist in the society is a very complex topic that has a lot of work already done on it. Um, but really grasping that science isn't facts. And I think that's the disconnect. Science isn't a set of facts. And I think we've seen it also in the pandemic where um, where policy didn't necessarily always um, match the, the science. But then again, the science was coming out so quickly and evolving so quickly that decisions have to be made. And I think when we take a step back and we look at what happened, we're going to, to learn a lot. Um, about how we can um, improve things for the future. Um, 
I think I'm just rambling no, now. That's, that's awesome. I mean, that's great. Um, thanks for um, sharing that. I, it's it's really challenging world because that uh, what you just said um, also um, made me think about data and observations. I mean, who makes those observations? Who actually creates that data? And and what are these stories that scientists or journalists or basically citizens, anybody can or are actually allowed to do from that data and and share? And obviously now with uh, social media and online, it's like so many people that actually are making those those stories. Um, mm-hmm based on more or less based on some some data so how do you yeah i mean it's i don't know how to put it to a question perhaps but uh but uh what is your take on that like what uh, what kind of perhaps i mean what kind of role you see uh universities can play in this game and 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 perhaps as uh i don't know somehow ensuring that well i mean if you learn how to create visualizations and analyze data, then it comes also with the ethics perhaps and, and some mm-hmm. moral compass to navigate through the sometimes tough decisions like what to leave out and what to... Absolutely. And I, I do very much believe in having data open source and available for everyone to look at. I think the role of the university... I think universities as public institutions have a mandate to contribute significantly to science literacy. And I think, um, you know, explaining what it is you look for in, for instance, an infographic or a commercial or a video, what are the elements that you should be looking for in terms of ensuring Um, the people who have um, put this information together have done their homework and have done so in an ethical way. I think, um, you know, when the internet just came out, my teachers at school would tell me I was only allowed to use information from the library because the truth is in books. And... As I grew older and gained more life experience, I realized that this isn't always the case. Books also have misinformation in them. So I think we all need to learn how to be vigilant about the information that we process ourselves and that we look at and that we have in our everyday lives. And I think that comes, and the role of the university is is very much in in helping educate, providing resources so people as individuals can can make those calls. Mm-hmm. Which makes me think uh, about what you said earlier, like disciplines as languages, as mm-hmm. cultures, where we understand something. I mean, whatever it is, uh, what, mm-hmm. what is happening in a certain field. And can can perhaps better interpret also all these visuals, all these infographics, um, mm-hmm. or share to us and, and critically assess those, like mm-hmm. whether it, it actually makes sense, mm-hmm. uh, whether I should um, 
base my decisions uh, on some of those mm-hmm. analyses. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you learn online last time? Or did it happen, by the way, online? Was it uh, from a book or, I don't know, what did you learn last time? And how? So just in general, what is the last thing that yeah, I, mean, that I learned? Last thing that comes to my mind, comes to your mind. Well, yesterday I watched some YouTube videos on how to prune aquarium plant. So given that I'm living in Finland now and we don't have a balcony, I've um, begun growing underwater aquarium plant. And so I've been learning how to um, promote their growth and how to fertilize them and which leaves to cut when so that I can have some beautiful aquascapes to look at um, over the winter. Very nice. And that happened online. Yes. So um, I'm super curious about this. So how many videos did you watch perhaps and for how long? And how do you see kind of the um, investment in terms of time and perhaps searching? And then then kind of the, did you learn what you you were looking to learn or how did yeah you- i think i think this 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 particular session was quite was quite effective and and straightforward um i gained the knowledge that i was looking for quite um quite easily and um in this particular hobby there are so many youtubers that that have really, really nicely crafted videos and are excellent teachers. Um, what is interesting is when you walk away for a moment and you let the video start playing, those those rabbit holes can often um, become quite interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I so know. Yeah. So... Um, it's interesting to see the algorithms at work trying to figure out what it is um, would most interest me based on my eclectic interests. So, um, so somebody, I mean, actually that AI or perhaps people behind that AI are actually trying to use our time mm-hmm. for their benefit. Mm-hmm. Perhaps sometimes we can also learn something that we didn't otherwise find, but sometimes it's just basically waste of time or at least waste of energy, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, I don't know, uh, how do you think, uh, I mean, how many people actually realize how much, and that's why, by the way, I was asking for the time, right? So, uh, True. but uh, how, how much people really realize um you know, the time they spent with all these recommender systems? You know, it's a very slippery slope because you ask me how long and I avoid the question because it's hard to say. Because I do enjoy having some background noise sometimes when I'm doing other things. I won't necessarily be attentive to what videos play next, what ads play next, but they're still there. And often... They slide very slowly and gradually into the realm of misinformation and propaganda, um, which is very strange, very strange. Or, you know, I will accidentally click bait 
click some clickbait once. And then for the next week, I'm inundated with um, this positive feedback loop of political views that I in no way share. Mm. So it's very, and, you know, but sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes it's much, much more subtle how, for instance, the YouTube algorithm brings you from watching Aquascape videos to um, topics such as, you know, vaccines being mind control devices. It isn't, it, it isn't this jump. It's this gradual, gradual um, slide towards these types of topics. That's how the, that's how frogs are also mm -hmm. boiled. Yes. Right? Horrible practice. Mm -hmm. By the way, um, but uh, that's the same perhaps experiment uh, with us so mm -hmm. or the subjects, uh, yep. most of us these days. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One, two, three, how many hours depending on the, on the person and the other commitments. Mm -hmm. with all these platforms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we can see the result. I mean, but uh, should, um, should university perhaps have a role in creating at least part of these recommender systems? What do you think? Uh, should our students be like, I don't know, somehow? I think the first step where experts from within the university can contribute would be in shaping the policies surrounding these practices. What is it exactly we want? And I think that is really, really the first step. Should this type of targeted ads be banned or not? Um, How can we try and address what ultimately becomes the problems? What are the problems that... So I think we need to... I think the university can definitely play a role in um, describing the problem and um, providing recommendations for policies to be shaped And then choosing whether, for instance, a technological innovation is necessary to address the issue or not. Or perhaps it's the technology itself, the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think the university plays a very, um, should be playing a role in terms of providing expertise on all of these topics mm -hmm. in an integrated interdisciplinary mm. way really yeah i i agree i fully agree with you i that's uh, so so we can conclude that the university actually has a role or should have a role also in the future i i absolutely agree that the university should have a role and has played a role historically in in society in you know, helping articulate problems, but also blowing the whistle on problems. Mm -hmm. Being, in a way, separate from, you know, 
certain types of political and economic um, influence and to be given the academic freedom to blow the whistle when there is a problem without consequence. Um, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I have a final question in mind. So, um, so this podcast is, of course, cloud creatures. So, I mean, my idea has been that our idea has been that uh, cloud is like a dream or, of course, online as well. Something that is kind of, that is um, worth trying to reach out for, I mean, dream, idea, anything. So, if you think about your own field, um, who or which project or, or which lab uh, could be this kind of cloud creature in your own field? So, you know, thinking carefully about your question, to me, those who make the biggest impact aren't necessarily those that we see. And I think, for instance, initiatives like yours have provided me with the resources and community necessary to take the risks to create opportunities for those who have dreams and who want to pursue their ideas in higher education and just more broadly in making the world a better place. So I hesitate to um, mention a single person, but honestly, I think of the people who have made my career possible when you ask me that question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I fully agree. It's, uh, and and, and um, if I have a follow-up question like... Um, Uh, how do you think um, the uh, perhaps these people who are actually actual cloud creators and, and going for the dreams and perhaps not going for the kind of obvious solutions, how should we reward them? I mean, is it resources funding or is it like more, I don't know, recognition in the society or, or how do you think? Uh, or are we fine? Are we... <laughs> I don't think we necessarily, like, in my experience, most people don't pursue their dreams because they're externally motivated. Mm. They pursue their dreams because they're internally motivated. And I think um, recognizing their work, recognizing their impact is important But I think providing them with the support and environment for them to continue to pursue their dreams, I think, is the most important thing to people who dream. That's so beautifully said. Um, thanks for joining Cloud Rachel. That was awesome. Um, Looking forward to our next, uh, yeah. next chat. Uh, let's uh, have an, another episode in the, in the future. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was, it was truly a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. Um, so this was Cloud Reachers. Thanks for joining. I'm Tommy Kaupin. Um, stay tuned. 
there will be more episodes to come. Cheers.